Hi everyone. Are you ready to talk about something just a little unsettling that we've all either willingly or unwillingly been complicit in? I thought so. Hello, 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 and welcome to Thinking is Cool, the show designed to make your next conversation better than your last. I am your host, Kinsey Grant, and I have a story for you. You ready? I got an ad on Instagram just before the holidays for a teapot, a millennial pink direct-to-consumer teapot. But that's not the whole story. The whole story is something more sinister, something more appalling, something more, how the fuck are we not talking about this all of the time? That ad, innocuous as it might have seemed at the time, sent me down the rabbit hole. That teapot represents so much more than just a would-be Christmas gift. It represents, as I will show you over the next bit of time, the depths of surveillance capitalism here in the US of A. Time to take you down the very same rabbit hole that I slipped into. Nothing is off limits, everything is on the table. Take it anywhere. And remember, thinking is cool, and so are you. In December, I was participating in a ritual as old as time, the pre-holiday panic about what to get your boyfriend as a gift for your first Christmas together without breaking the $100 budget you had previously agreed to. I was a lost soul, wandering the desert of 10 things your bae needs this holiday season listicles when it appeared like a mirage, an ad for the cheese bloom glass teapot. It was a perfect gift idea, served to me on a silver platter, and by a silver platter, I mean a targeted ad on Instagram stories feature. See, my boyfriend Coleman is a bit of a tea snob, and I say that with love. He's always sniffing bags of leaves I have never heard of before and weighing tea leaves and refusing me when I offer English breakfast, the only tea I have ever bought myself. He's just deeply into tea, but I am not. I Google a lot of weird shit for this job, but I never, to my knowledge, have Googled anything about tea, teapots, or tea paraphernalia. Coffee, sure, but never tea. So I saw the ad, clicked through like a doofus, realized it was outside our predetermined gift budget, and went about my search for a gift that said, I love you so much and definitely know you to your core, but also I don't want to rush you in our relationship. This is our first Christmas together. I had my ideas, but clearly fate had other plans, because not a few days later, I saw a viral Twitter thread from May reposted on an Instagram account I follow called Shit You Should Care About. The thread explained why the author was getting ads for his mom's toothpaste of choice after spending some time at his mom's house. That's when it hit me. The ad for the teapot I didn't buy was more than just a convenient coincidence. It was planted by data-driven design in my feed for many reasons, one of them being because I spend perhaps an unhealthy amount of time with a voracious tea lover. How did the Chi, the brand behind this teapot I didn't know, know? Had they heard Coleman beg me to go to that tea shop in Williamsburg with him? Did the FBI agent in my phone watch as I pretended to like the tea concoction Coleman gave me that actually just looked and tasted like dung water? Was I now labeled by big tech as a tea lover by association? Today, I'm taking you on the journey to find out because what started with a curious tea ad ended as a much much bigger conversation. And I'm sure that it's a conversation you've thought about yourself. We've all considered that FBI agent in our phone, but today we're taking it a step further. We're gonna figure out what exactly they know.
I think it's important now that you know about the ad, as it shall henceforth be referred to as, that we next run through the thread. Spoiler alert, I interviewed Robert Reeve, who wrote this viral thread for today's episode, so you'll hear from him and his incredible mic that is much better than mine in just a few moments. But for right now, I'm going to read you the thread because it's important and it's not that long. So here we go. And a quick reminder, this is written by Robert G. Reeve. He's at Robert G. Reeve on Twitter. All right, here's Robert's thread. I'm back from a week at my mom's house, and now I'm getting ads for her toothpaste brand, the brand I've been putting in my mouth for a week. We never talked about this brand or Googled it or anything like that. As a privacy tech worker, let me explain why this is happening. First of all, your social media apps are not listening to you. This is a conspiracy theory. It's been debunked over and over again. But frankly, they don't need to because everything else you give them unthinkingly is way cheaper and way more powerful. Your apps collect a ton of data from your phone, your unique device ID, your location, your demographics. We know this. Data aggregators pay to pull in data from everywhere. When I use my discount card at the grocery store, every purchase, that's a data set for sale. They can match my Harris Teeter purchases to my Twitter account because I gave both those companies my email address and phone number, and I agreed to all that data sharing when I accepted those terms of service and the privacy policy. Here's where it gets truly nuts though. If my phone is regularly in the same GPS location as another phone, they'd take note of that. They start reconstructing the web of people I am in regular contact with. Now, I will say this as an editor's note, Robert clarified to me when I interviewed him for this episode that the GPS location sharing is actually less important than who you share a Wi-Fi network with. That's primarily how you end up being served ads for things your roommate slash boyfriend might want. All right. Back to the thread. The advertisers can cross-reference my interests in browsing history and purchase history to those around me. And it starts showing me different ads based on the people around me, family, friends, coworkers. It will serve me ads for things I don't want, but it knows someone I'm in regular contact with might want to subliminally get me to start a conversation about, I don't know, fucking toothpaste. It never needed to listen to me for this. It's just comparing aggregated metadata. The other thing is, this is just out there, in the open. Tons of people report on this. It's just nobody cares. We have decided our privacy just isn't worth it. It's a losing battle. We've already given away too much of ourselves. And another editor's note, this is Robert pulling a quote from a New York Times piece. Quote, we spotted a senior official at the Department of Defense walking through the Women's March. His wife was also on the mall that day, something we discovered after tracking him to his home in Virginia. End quote. Now back to the rest of the thread. So they know my mom's toothpaste. They know I was at my mom's. They know my Twitter. Now I get Twitter ads for my mom's toothpaste. Your data isn't just about you. It's about how it can be used against every person you know and people you don't to shape behavior unconsciously. That last part is what got me so profoundly. My data isn't just about me and yours isn't just about you. Our data is part of a much larger social tapestry. I've always said, perhaps as an act of self-soothing, that I don't really care if international entities access my data. Like, I don't know, they can come take it if they really want it. And I'm pretty sure they can probably already get it if they really want it. But the more I think about it, the more I recognize that my attitude is pretty small-minded. It fails to account for the fact that while my data as a 27-year-old material girl is pretty uninteresting, the fact that it can be accessed in ways I've consented to but don't fully understand should give us pause. 
We'll get to why that is and what we can do about it in a few minutes, but before we do, I wanted to dig a little deeper into why we're having this conversation in the first place. Why do we see so many targeted ads built on this rich network of aggregated metadata that we've handed over to tech and media companies? How the hell did we get here? The short answer, because it works so damn well. You have a lot of, of institutional understanding and knowledge about the D2C space. And that is, in my personal experience, where I'm seeing so many of these targeted ads more recently. A lot of them are coming from these cool, sexy, like sans serif upstarts that are trying to get me to buy their product. So with that, what does targeted advertising mean today? Sure. So, you know, decades ago, there was this acronym of ADA, which stands for Awareness, Interest, Desire, and Action. And in theory, you're pushing somebody down this conversion funnel from awareness to action. And through these ads, they are getting their own inclination to go and want to buy the product or try it. A lot of the more modern technology, it feels like it's compressing that process of going from awareness to action. There have been many times, literally within the last 24 hours, I did it where I see something for the first time on like an Instagram story, I click through and I purchase it without ever leaving Instagram. That was part of my conversation with Nick Sharma, the artist known on Twitter as the D2C guy and the genius behind Sharma Brands, which works with all of your favorite D2C brands like House and Caraway and Judy. Nick is one of the smartest people I know, a fantastic networker, and often one of the first to say, Anyone uh, feel like doing a shot, but in like the best way possible? So what Nick explained in our conversation is that with traditional ads like magazine spots for, say, Coca-Cola, there was incredibly limited or frankly non-existent reporting on how well these traditional ads were performing or not performing. There was no real way of knowing what worked, and it made the job of advertisers a lot harder. But then... Mark Zuckerberg got dumped and the world was never the same again with the advent of social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram, plus search engines like Google and whatever the fuck Amazon is. We, as then early internet users, became all too comfortable handing over our very personal details in the form of mass amounts of data. Anonymized data, but data nonetheless. Armed with that data, advertisers were suddenly cooking with gas. An entire industry sprung out of the internet with the sole purpose of aggregating that anonymized data and selling it as a tool to make the jobs of advertisers, targeting us as consumers with a compressed awareness to action pipeline, easier. Because no matter what their mission statements say about connecting people or building community or organizing the world's information, it's always been ads that make money. So, uh, Kinsey, if, if you and I DM on Instagram and you go look at a sniff candle and Instagram knows that we're, we're close friends on Instagram, I might actually start to see ads for sniff because there's an assumption that because you're looking into it and we communicate, I might be the one who's also interested in that product, considering we might have similar interests. Um, and, and similarly, too, if I go to sniff and, and I click on an ad and get to sniff, you know, Facebook now knows, okay, you know, on a scale of one to 10, let's say, Nick is maybe now a 7.8 in interest because he spent 37 seconds on the site. He went two pages in, he looked at different scents that were available for the candle. And now we know that we have a pretty high probability of if we show him this specific ad with this specific message and caption, we have a much better chance of converting him to actually being a customer. That is one example of many. We're also talking about things like 
Facebook, knowing how long you stop scrolling when you see a video to measure how much that targeted content holds your attention. Or self-driving car companies training their machine learning algorithms by buying the datasets that you, perhaps unwittingly, provide every single time you prove to a CAPTCHA system that you're not a robot because you can identify what pictures have a bridge or a sidewalk or a pedestrian in them. Or email companies inserting invisible pixels into your morning newsletter to gain all kinds of information once you click open. Nick gave another example that brings this point to bear. This is not just Facebook and Google and the like participating in the targeted ads economy. I'll let him explain. I can give you an example. You know, when I worked at a beverage company, we were trying to find cohorts of users who were buying competitive products. And so we went to an advertising company called Rakuten and they have this product called Slice Intelligence. And Slice Intelligence owns another product called Unroll.me, which is an inbox management tool. And it helps you kind of clear your newsletters and, and basically clean your inbox up. And uh, what, what they do is they take, okay, if, if Kinsey bought uh, Harmless Harvest coconut water or LaCroix water from Amazon, they'll actually put you in, in, a, in a bucket and then they'll, you know, then Slice and Rakuten have access to that and then they'll go sell that to you. And so it's, it's so hard to just stay mad at it because it's always gonna keep happening in the background. The thing is, it's easy to hear those examples and get riled up. How could they? Why don't I get a dime of my money made from my data? What gives? But we consented to a lot of this, to a lot of this anonymized data sharing when we said, yeah, okay, I agree, without reading the terms and conditions of use for all manner of tech platforms. And what's more, we might not really like the internet if data sharing went away. The trade-off has always been convenience, right? If you want yeah. to go find something quickly, uh, the platform that will most conveniently show it to you is also going to be in exchange collecting your data. And I mean, this has been going on for, for like a couple decades now. You know, if you think back to even like Quantcast, which is a, one of the large advertising companies, like they know, they know what car you drive and they know what you watch on Hulu and then they use all that data collectively and they know that you might open the skim and they use all that data collectively to then show you an ad. And those ads they show you, they're usually not that bad. I got the ad for a teapot that was an almost perfect gift for Coleman. I didn't get an ad for like adult diapers or tractor parts or baby toys. I got an ad that made my life a little more convenient. But at what cost? There's a price on that convenience, and we're going to talk about it after this quick, definitely not programmed or targeted ad. I know what you're thinking. This entire episode is about how advertising and modern media is twisting our world right before our very eyes, and now you're about to hear an ad. Ugh. But I want you to know something, and this is a very important something. This isn't a teapot kind of ad. Thinking is cool is not that kind of show. What I'm going to tell you more about in the next minute is a product that I personally purchase, enjoy, and gift all of the time. It's an ad for something you maybe didn't know you needed or wanted. It's an ad for something that has, on many occasions for me, marked special celebrations or once-in-a-lifetime memories. It's an ad for something made sustainably and uniquely. It's an ad for Mossicon, Napa Valley's only all-white wine winery and the brand behind just about everything that I uncork these days. If you've ever been to my apartment or to any event or restaurant with a BYOB policy, you have probably shared a bottle of Massacon Sauvignon Blanc or Anya wines with me. Because Massacon creates wines that are crisp and complex, 
wines that unveil themselves to you, wines that start conversation. But they're also $30 a bottle, free of additives and sugar, and low in alcohol. It is truly the best of everything. Now, new wines are bottling in February and dropping in March. And between us, like I said last time, they tend to sell out pretty quickly. So get on the list or purchase a bottle or like a bunch today on the Masakan website. That is M-A-S-S-I-C-A-N.com. Or check out the local selection at fine wine shops and select Whole Foods nationwide. And I promise you this, I work with Masakan because I really, really like Masakan wine and I'm pretty positive that you will too. Now, before that break, I said this. There's a price on that convenience. And that price, it might seem, is humanity's own collective self-determination. Allow me to explain by using my own ideas and those I came across in a truly enjoyable and thought-provoking conversation I had with Robert Reeve, the author of that viral Twitter thread I read before, and someone who's worked in privacy tech for a good long while now. So Robert and I went through his Twitter thread together and spoke about it at length, and it was invigorating, to say the least. But once we realized that we were veering off in an entirely different direction with an entirely different conversation, things got really interesting. What Robert and I ended up talking about most was the concept of responsibility in a world defined by this tension between liberty and freedom. Like it or not, We live in a world that could easily be described as a system of surveillance capitalism, an economic system often defined as rooted in the commodification of personal data with the singular purpose of profit-seeking and making. We provide data. Tech overlords make money selling it. We get convenience. They get control. That's a severely black and white means of communicating a tremendously gray idea, but it stoked in me and Robert these questions. Where do we draw the line for surveillance capitalism? How do we determine the difference between our data being used to make the world more convenient and our data being used to Cambridge Analytica all of us again? To achieve specific and unilateral ends by any means possible, can we determine that difference at all? At the core of those questions is this one. Who's the bad guy? If we want to best understand how we determine good and bad uses of technology, we need to know where to point fingers. We need to know what's convenience and what is social grooming. We need to know who is the villain. I guess if I'm going to be really provocative in some ways, I feel like the villain is ourselves, you know, like the villain is humanity and like the way that tech companies have gamed our behavior and how we treat each other. They figured out like advertently or inadvertently, what makes people tick? And and they're cranking all the dials on those things up to 11, generally in pursuit of profit. So maybe maybe my, my second controversial thing is capitalism is the bad guy, but everybody says that these days, I think. And I, I don't disagree. I, and next time <laughs> on Thinking is Cool. Uh, no, but you know, I, I think that this it, in a lot of ways, you know, this conversation, we could say it's very specific. We're talking about the ways that targeted ads work on the internet. But I think it's also so much bigger than that. When we consider that tech in a lot of ways, you know, there's there's always a conversation about technology isn't good or bad, it just is. I think a lot of people have suggested that. The real villain or superhero is the ways that we use it, the ways that we utilize technology in so many ways 
our biggest gripe is that these tech companies are holding a mirror up to humanity in a lot of ways. Um, and that yeah. that can be really unsettling to recognize that like, well, shit, they're just they're giving us what we want. We are we are going out every day and giving them data numbers and like ones and zeros to suggest that this is actually what we want. This is what we're interested in. But there is also the counter argument to that, that just as often as tech is a mirror for society and for humanity, humanity is shaped by a lot of these technological influences the more and more that we move online and we consider the metaverse as the future or even just the present, the last two years in the pandemic, so much has happened online that we we have to question how much society as a large is being shaped by these decisions of data aggregators and the tech companies that collect data. And, and even, I want to be clear, it's not just the Facebooks, Twitters, Googles of the world. It's like, I worked for an mm -hmm. email company and they knew a lot about you too. <laughs> like even the small companies yeah. have ways of collecting this data. Um, so I'm curious to hear your perspective on, on that, on the ways um, or perhaps the dangers in the, the nature of society being something that is malleable, that can be impacted by outside elements, that outside element, of course, being the internet. Yeah, I think that's why big tech is, the target it is, is they built things that are so vast and touch so many aspects of our lives that I think they are no longer under even their own creator's control. And it is impossible for them to predict every possible bad actor and how the systems they built can be exploited by those who have the resources and incentive to do so. Data collection and aggregation is a fantastically impressive technology. To think it's evolved so rapidly is truly astounding. But that technology can be used by bad actors that, under the cover of the internet's vastness, are pulling the strings of society like we're nothing but a marionette doll. Not to get, as Robert put it in our conversation, all Charlie Day, it's all connected on you, but it starts with a teapot. What comes next? That ad was intelligent and targeted enough to get me to click, to get me to take an action. What other action can data aggregation beget? We know that the answer to that question is incredibly difficult to articulate. Technology and the people who create it are imperfect. They're also not fortune tellers. We can't expect them to predict every possible utilization of their tech before it comes to fruition. But what we can do is expect them to take responsibility when tech goes badly. I have a thought about Facebook and Twitter doing more with the ad data they have and like a way to use it ethically that they don't do right now. Okay. The same way that we have ad profiles that tell us like, my partner likes tea. Like there can be stuff attached to your profile that are like, this person engages with a lot of content around white supremacy. And literally, like, Facebook generates these ad categories algorithmically. Rob explained that to an algorithm, we are a collection of our interests. Those interests can be, as he stated, alluding to his own Dungeons and Dragons. Those interests could be tea. Those interests could be, I don't know, delicate gold jewelry. But those interests could also be 
white supremacism and anti-Semitism and racism. Facebook had some algorithmically generated ad tags around, like, anti-Semitism. And companies went and, and bought ads on those tags. And, and this was like a news story a couple years ago. Like, it turns out, and Facebook was like, we didn't build that on purpose. Our machine learning algorithms just happened to make tags for selling ads for anti-Semitism. And they're like, of course, we never meant for this to happen. And it's time to shut these down. And we're, we're shutting them down. We're, 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 we're pulling all of this data out. And, and we're making sure no one can ever do this again. But, like, the thing that I would rather see is, like, if you have this data... Why aren't you sharing it with, like, your moderation teams? Uh, if you can buy and sell ads on anti-vax propaganda, you know, that means that you know all the people who are engaging with that or the people who are really distributing a lot of that. Like, I think that some watchdogs for anti-vaccine propaganda have, like, narrowed it down to, like, 20 people on Facebook are sharing, like, the vast majority of the content. And they've reached out to Facebook to be like, hey, like, you have an ethical responsibility here to shut these people down and shape this public health debate for the good of society. And then you're touching on, like, free speech issues, too, there. Like, should Facebook do that? My opinion is yes, they should. The free speech debate is also, that's about government intervention, not about, like, your right to have a profile on, like, a private company's social media network. So I think that... There's a lot of ways that the, this data they collect, nominally for ads, can be used for authentic good in shaping society, but it just doesn't get used that way. And that's really frustrating to me, to, to know that somewhere, Facebook and Twitter know who the white supremacists are, but they're like, but our growth metrics, everyone should be here because we're still selling like like the worst version of even conservatives by nike's you know my natural next question went something like this isn't that opening pandora's box if we allow these tech platforms run by technocrats to reach in this way what's to suggest that they won't overreach in other ways to potentially bend the will of society in ways far more nefarious than rooting out the propagandists the answer is somewhat unsatisfying, but they already do. <laughs> Content moderation is obviously imperfect, but it does exist, and sometimes it even works. I guess that's at the root of a lot of this conversation that we're having today. Sometimes tech does work, and when it does, there are so many immense benefits to be reaped for all of us. Stumbling upon the perfect Christmas gift in between your friends' Instagram stories, or learning how to perfectly fry an egg on TikTok, or connecting with your high school English teacher on Facebook, that's tech done right. Inevitably, though, there will be times when tech is done wrong. That much we know. For those most concerned with that angle of this conversation, I present this from Robert. If you're like a, a prepper, I want to live in a data bunker, I never want the government to know anything I've ever searched for, and I think that Google is selling my data to the government, like, if you're one of those people, there are ways to go crazier than that. For someone who's just like, I'm concerned, but I want life to still be livable on the internet. Uh, I don't want to, like, have to, like, reroute my traffic through the Onion network. Use Firefox. Use Firefox and switch your default uh, search engine to DuckDuckGo, the privacy-minded search engine. I was worried about it at first because, like, I was like, 
there's no way this is going to be as good as Google. It's pretty dang good. I was surprised. In the rare instance where DuckDuckGo doesn't really get me there, I just switch to Google and I'm like, all right, Google, you can have this data point. At the end of the day, this conversation, whether it's had on Firefox or Chrome or face-to-face, -face, is far from over. Technology is never static. It is always evolving in different ways and directions. And I certainly don't have all the answers, but I hope listening to this got you thinking about what the teapot in your life is. What do the little things you encounter online mean about you, about your community, about your world? And how are you going to hold those responsible for said meaning accountable? That's what I'll be thinking about for a while, and I hope you will be too, because it's not about the teapot. It's never about the teapot. It's about so much more. Thank you for listening, everyone. Have a blast today. Go find some weird as fuck Instagram ads, send them my way. And remember, thinking is cool and so are you. I'm Kinsey Grant, and I will see you next week. <laughs>